Well, good morning, brothers. How are you this morning? It sounds like it. Love the sun out there, and good seeing you. And remember, what we say at Amen stays at Amen, like Jackie's husband teaching on patience this morning. Uh, nobody tell my wife I'm teaching on patience. I just do what I'm assigned, whether I can practice it or not. But we submit ourselves to God's Word, and our text comes today from James chapter 5, verses 7 to 12. We looked at James a couple of weeks ago, and uh, uh, incredible book written by the brother of our Lord, and everything in James, you know, can come across as, as um, a book of do's and don'ts. But you have to remember, this book was read as a whole in the churches. <clears throat> this was a sermon, and the whole sermon begins in chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So everything we read in James, every direction that we find, every commandment, is to be under the shadow of that beautiful shadow of these early words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that we're commanded to do, we are only enabled to do by looking back to Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we don't just read today about patience and think, man, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go out and be more patient. You can't do it. You go back to the Lord Jesus Christ who enables it. Well, uh, there's one other orientation I need to give you before we read verses 7 to 12, 7 to 11, and that is uh, <clears throat> for James, this reference to the coming of the Lord is very important. You see in verse 7, uh, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord and later, uh, verse 8, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So whatever he's going to tell us about patience in this passage is governed by this idea that this life is not all there is. There's going to be an end to what is happening here. Jesus is coming back. The, the bad news we read about today, the things that we're afraid of today, the high prices of, of gas and so on, it's not the... It's all going to come to an end someday. Jesus is going to come back. And uh, when James talks about the coming of the Lord, he intends to uh, convey to his readers things are going to be made right at the coming of the Lord. Two things in specific, specifically. I'm giving you this longer introduction because we're diving into the middle of the book I want you to understand these things, what he means by the coming of the Lord, what's going to happen when the coming of the Lord occurs. First, the manner, I'm going to give you two points, they're not on your outline. It's before we get to the outline. Got it right up there in the top margin somewhere. <clears throat> First, the manner of the Lord is going to bring you comfort, deep satisfaction, the manner of the Lord's coming. Uh, he says, literally, when he says the Lord is coming, he uses that Greek word parousia, which uh, literally means presence. And uh, in the old days, it referred to the appearance 
of a sovereign, a king, so that when he showed up, you know, that's the king. You know, when a king would enter, just like if the president of the United States or some foreign emperor, uh, president, uh, a grand potentate walked in the back of this room, we wouldn't say, hmm, is that the, uh, is that the Queen of England? Sure looks like the Queen of England. Or that's the, pre- no, you'd hear the pomp and circumstance, you'd see the royal clothes, you'd have all the guards and so forth. There's no doubt. And uh, so when the, when the New Testament writers use this word parousia, the presence of the Lord is coming, it's a reference to the manner in which the Lord will come. And that is, there will be no doubt. Not only there will be no doubt that he's here, no doubt he is the Lord. That's why Paul will say, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. There won't be any quibbling about it. There won't be anybody saying, I'll submit to him later. Oh, I don't believe in Jesus. There will be no doubt Jesus has come. And the, the New Testament writers encourage us with that. You know, you may be, you may be uh, persecuted, dismissed. You may think you're the minority of freak as a Christian right now, but the day is coming when there will be no doubt. The second point that uh, the New Testament writers, especially James, make with reference to the coming of the Lord that, that should give us great uh, great hope and anticipation of what that day is going to be like. The second is the timing, the timing of it. <clears throat> we don't know the timing, don't know when he's coming. But we do know this, when the Bible talks about timing, like in Mark and Luke, it, the coming is near, or in uh, Peter, it is at hand, or Hebrews 10.25, the day is drawing near, or in Revelation, Christ is coming quickly. Uh, here's what it means. Paul explains in chapter Romans 8, 18, our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Uh, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us a, an eternal weight in glory. In other words, when it says it's at hand, it's near, and so forth, it, the reference is all our sufferings will end. When Jesus comes, it will be no doubt he is the king, and this is his kingdom, and everything that he promised is true, and the kingdom, the eternal kingdom is inaugurated. There's no going back. And secondly, there is no more suffering. Ah, oh, that's good news, right? That's, it's good news that we're, going to be, we're, it's going to, that we're on the winning side, and it's going to be clear that we're on the winning side. It's good news that our suffering someday will end and end totally, and there will be an eternal experience of joy and health, and flourishing. Why James? Because somebody has to say, well, how do you live now? That's great. That's great that someday it's going to end. It's great that someday it's going to be proven Jesus is Lord, but I'm suffering now. This world is in the throes of suffering now. What do we say to our Ukrainian brothers and sisters now? What do we say to our brothers and sisters suffering uh, in China, whose uh, suffering is not so uh, obvious to us, or our brothers and sisters suffering the terrible wars in Central Africa that's not so present to us. What do we say to our friend who's just been diagnosed with cancer? What do I say to you? 
who are suffering in all kinds of ways right now. Well, James says, be patient. You say, well, you know, can I talk to somebody else, please? But patience, according to the Bible, is not exactly what we understand it to be. So with a preparation to be encouraged by the power of the gospel, a Savior who is here for us now, we begin reading in James chapter 5, verses 7 to 11. <clears throat> be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives uh, the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Let's pray. <clears throat> Oh, Lord, I pray for my brothers and uh, their brothers and sisters, too, and within the sound of my voice later on, and I pray for them. And I pray for their specific, the way they are suffering. Some have obvious struggles, ways they're suffering. It's a diagnosis. It's a wayward child. It's a, it's a strained marriage relationship. It's a, it's a problem at work. It's a fear of the future. It's unemployment. Or it's depression or anxiety or hurt or bitterness. They're suffering. And you see it. And I pray today, Father, that by your Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ would enable them to be patient in all the ways that we are going to learn it manifests itself. And in making us, enabling us to be patient, oh Lord, we ask no one would be so deluded has to look at us and say, my, what a patient person. But instead say, what a Savior. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> when I lived in St. Louis, uh, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch every week on, in the Sunday paper had something in the <clears throat> cartoon section called the Magic Eye. And uh, it was a picture that just looked like dots on a page, made no sense, different colors, but by, and uh, you, you smart people could explain uh, why this happens, but if you hold, if you put it right up to your nose like that, and then let your, your eyes go limp, that's a technical word, limp, let your eyes go limp, and then you slowly move it away, the picture would come in view. 
And that's very much what, what um, James is getting at. That he wants us to stare uh, so uh, devotedly to Jesus, King Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything he tells us, it goes back to that first verse. I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fix your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ until all of this suffering that you're going through comes into perspective. He doesn't give us a, a way, a coping mechanism. He doesn't give us a, he doesn't give us a, a, a uh, a strategy for escapism. Pretend like it's not there. The power of positive thinking, whatever. He instead says, when you look at the Lord Jesus, you know, right now, when you're in your suffering, it tends to be blurry. Where are you, Lord? The suffering is in plain view. Jesus is, is fuzzy. But when you're focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord over the present and the one who is coming. He says, your suffering will be put into perspective in the present. That's what he calls patience. Well, patience must be something that we're, it must be using it in a way that we're not accustomed to. You know, the old folks called it long-suffering. But patience, I would uh, venture to define or describe it this way. Patience is a settled confidence in God's sovereignty, enabling one to live peacefully and graciously in the present. Patience, it seems to me from this passage from the Bible, is a settled confidence in God's sovereignty. A settled confidence in God's sovereignty, and it enables one to live peacefully and graciously in the present. We will learn, as we're looking at Jesus, to view our suffering from an eternal perspective. And that eternal reconsideration is what James calls patience. Makra thumisate. Makra thumisate. Makro, macro, macro. Putting your passions in a macro perspective. Putting your suffering in a macro perspective. It's not passivity, it's not restraint, it's, I mean, it's, it's not merely restraint, it's not m passivity, it's not merely masking your anger when somebody cuts you off in traffic, although it should make a difference in the way you drive. But it is, more importantly, living in a way that projects to others the settled confidence possible when the Lord Jesus Christ is your guide. Well, I said that it's, it enables us to live graciously and, or peacefully and graciously in the presence. Those are the two points I want to make to you. God is a judge. God is just, I should say. God is, because God is just, we must live peace, peacefully. And because God is gracious, we must live graciously. That's what patience will look like. When, when our eyes are fixed on the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will remember God is a good judge. He does all things well. We can live at peace. 
God is a gracious God, I can live and show grace to others. First of all, verses 9 9 and 12, God is just or He is the judge. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. In verse 12, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. The first thing that we, uh, we have to understand about, about uh, uh, James's uh, exhortation to patience is that he's not talking about patience when you are just when you're persecuted or just when you are in extraordinary circumstances, but he's talking about living in this settled confidence peacefully in the trials of everyday life. Now, how do I know it's the everyday life? For one, the verbs he uses. Verse 9, uh, don't grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. Uh, let your heart, where, what am I looking for? Establish your, verse 8, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. This is an inward. So as you are dealing with things inwardly, apply this concept that Jesus is Lord. He talks about the farmer. The farmer, the farmer is patient. The, the farmer has to have a settled confidence because no day is predictable. Uh, the, the farmer didn't wake up, uh, didn't go to bed at night thinking everything will be tomorrow just the way it was today. No, he goes to bed at night saying, I don't know what the weather's going to be. I wonder what pests are out there. I wonder what kind of uh, fungus I'm going to have and what kind of weeds I'm going to have. It's, it's, uh, it can be nerve-wracking to be a farmer. It's a daily, daily, moment-by-moment struggle, and so is the Christian life. Living under the Lordship of Christ is not just something for extraordinary times. It's not just something for Sunday. Living under the Lord Jesus Christ is something that must characterize the way we face even the most humdrum, common challenges of daily life, which takes us to the tongue, doesn't it? Because uh, what, what begins in the heart makes its way out of the mouth. And so the first indicator, the first barometer that we are not living in a settled confidence that Jesus is Lord is that we grumble. We grumble and complain. Remember, you're not supposed to tell my wife anything that I'm teaching on today. Grumble and complain. We murmur, especially against one another. James makes more of the tongue than anybody in the New Testament, and and uh, it's uh, it characterizes most of his book. We've already just a chapter before he says, chapter four, verse eleven: Do not speak against one another. The first thing we are tempted to do when our situation gets when we're in a pressure cooker, when we, are, when we are feeling threatened, when we don't like the changes around us, when, we are, when we are, we're feeling desperate, the, the ground feels like it's moving beneath us, the first thing we do, we don't, we don't com- most of us don't complain against God because we don't have the guts to do that. So we take it out on one another. 
And it's, and it's, not, it's, not, it's never logical. You know, your world is changing. You feel like you're losing control and so forth. So who are you going to take it out on? Okay, your wife, your children, your next-door neighbor, friends you've had for a long time, friends at church, your pastors, your elders. I'm going to take it out on somebody. My world is changing. I'm going to... I'm going to, you don't think it this way, but this is what happened. I'm going to project my stress on everybody. I'm not going to allow them to be happy if I'm not happy. Everybody's going to go down in this ship with me. What is to explain the national phenomenon that we're experiencing of people losing their minds, including us? Few of us thinking logically taking out our frustration on one another, breaking friendships, breaking fellowship, introducing schism into peaceful situations, tearing up churches. Now, if we're on the surface, we're thinking, I'm standing for truth. I'm doing, I'm, I'm, I've got to, but it doesn't, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance. And James addresses it because James is dealing with this kind of problem in the church. The people are being persecuted by authorities. They're being, some of them being trampled on by the wealthy or the well-connected. And so, but instead of pulling together and loving one another and encouraging one another, instead they take it out on their brothers and sisters. It doesn't make any sense, but sin never does. And so James says the first indication that the Lord Jesus Christ is fuzzy in your eyes is the way you're treating one another, especially with your tongue. Grumbling, complaining. Uh, One of my many therapists told me one time, it a, it's a, happens to be a neighbor here on the campus, <clears throat> um, the psych center, grateful for that ministry. One person said, you know, sometimes you've got to be careful, George. When you get in a tight spot, your emotions can come out sideways at the people that you love most. What a, what a great and convicting uh, expression. Uh, and uh, I don't think I'm alone in that. When the Lord Jesus is not our focus, our internal angst, our fear of change, our aggravation at the world situation, our fear of what's happening in the economy comes out sideways at the people who have nothing to do with it and who love us most. James says, he, does, he says not only don't grumble, he says, remember verse 1, chapter 1, Put your eyes back on King Jesus. Secondly, don't swear. Verse 12, above all my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or earth or any other oath, oath, but let your yes be yes, your no, no. Now, is he talking about cussing? Well, that's generally a good idea not to cuss, but it's bigger than that. It is 
don't take it out on the Lord either. I, I said that sometimes we don't have the, the, the nerve to complain against God. But, you know, the, and the Bible does allow room for us to complain to God. The Psalms, Habakkuk, the prophets, where are you, O Lord? How long, O Lord? So forth. But uh, while the Lord encourages us to come to Him honestly with the burdens our, that we have, our fears, our anxieties, He's still God and we are His servants. We come to Him respectfully. Sometimes we complain this way. We think, okay, if God's not going to give me what I want, if He's not going to answer my needs, if He's going to leave me in this suffering, well, I'm going to show Him. I'm going to turn my back on Him. Or I'm going to do this the way I want to. I'm going to take this shortcut and work. I'm going to take this out on the person who has wronged me. And there's never room for that kind of disrespect. I tell couples, if I'm talking to them about their, their frustrations with one another, I say, you know, we, we have to be honest with each other. We have to share our feelings with each other. But let me suggest just a, 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 a little preamble that I've learned makes things go a lot better. At least I like to hear it myself, and I'm, I think other people, especially my wife, may, like she wants to know how I feel, but this little preamble may be helpful. I'm sure this is not true, but this is the way I feel. How many of our friendships would be changed if instead of assuming one's motive and acting according to it, we say, I, I, I'm sure this is not true, and I'm eager to be corrected, but this is what it appears to be. This is the way I feel. Our relationships would go back together a lot easier than just going at somebody saying, you're a liar. When you did that, you had the worst possible motive in view. And it's no different with God. He's a person. He's not as fragile as we are. He's not fragile at all. But He is the Father who loves us. It is the Jesus who died for us. So it is appropriate. It's a good training for your heart to say, Lord, I know this is not true. And I'm eager to be corrected, but the way I feel is you've, you've abandoned me. I feel abandoned. Or I feel like this is not fair. I feel like this cannot be good that you're taking my wife from me or, you're, or my child is dying. Or I feel this cannot be good. I'm eager to be corrected, but this is the way I feel. Father, adjust my perspective. Living with the, the Lord Jesus as our focus will change the way we speak. It'll change the way we view one another. It'll change the way we view and relate to the Lord. And all of that can be characterized as peaceful living. A focus on the Lord Jesus Christ will make your life with one another more peaceful. Just ask yourself Am I constant? Why is there constant angst around me? Why is there constant disruption in relationships? And, and instead of saying, because none of these people see things the way they ought to see it, instead saying, maybe I, my view is not clear on the Lord.
And why am I constantly grumbling at the Lord? Why am I constantly living in resentment of Him? My focus is not on Jesus and His wounds. He hasn't abandoned me. He can't be anything but good. His purposes for me have to be perfect and self-sacrificial because He's proven it by His, by his sacrifice. Live peacefully. Secondly, God is gracious, therefore we must live graciously. Verses 10 and 11, pardon me. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, you've seen the purpose of the Lord how the Lord is compassionate and gracious. You know, James is, <clears throat> James, uh, is a man of few words. And because he is, uh, he, you really have to ponder what he is talking about. He packs a lot of things into a few words. And, and sometimes you think, I, I just don't follow how that makes sense. So he says, uh, if you're going to live you know, living patiently means look at the prophets, and then he passes on to the next se- section. Well, what, the, what do you mean by that, James? What, what, what do you mean that looking at the prophets will help me to be a patient person in my suffering? Specifically, it'll help me be gracious like a gracious God. Well, just think back. He encourages us to think back. He's, he's addressing primarily Jews, and these Jewish people would have, would have known the prophets very well. They could, have, they could have gone back through the history of the prophets, and it would have made sense to them what he was talking about. Let me, let me explain it to you. When we think about the prophets, when you look through the lives of the prophets, you, you, you end up finding people you can relate to. You know, God is not a hagiographer. Hagio meaning holiness. It, it's not that, you know, these, you know, these old biographies we used to read in school, uh, like um, Teddy Roosevelt was the finest human being that ever walked on the face of the earth, never had a bad day, always respectful to his mother, loved all those around him, and so forth. Bully. Uh, he's a biographer. God is a biographer. He tells us the whole truth about every person. It's unvarnished. And it's true of the prophets. David was a prophet. Nobody wrote a hagiography of David. God tells us exactly who David was. Yeah, he wrote some good poetry. He made some good decisions on the battlefield. He was also an adulterer and a murderer. And then what about uh, Jeremiah? Good preacher. But um, he also wrote Lamentations and complained against God in Lamentations 3, saying, why in the world have you put gravel in my mouth? What did I do to deserve this? You're making life horrible for me. Or what about Elijah? He whoops up on the prophets of Baal, and then he turns around and he says, there's nobody left. I'm the only one. You've left, you've, 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 you've strung me out here. Lord, you've abandoned me, discouraged and depressed. Or Habakkuk, Lord, you're just evil for allowing these Babylonians to take over. Or Jonah, 
so angry, he said, I'd rather die than keep on living. So what is James talking about when he says, consider the prophets who remained steadfast? He really is saying, consider the Lord of the prophets who enabled the prophets to remain steadfast. You know who the prophets were. They're not steadfast people. They're not stable-minded people. They can be erratic. They can lose their faith. They can be impatient. But the Lord kept them, and He kept them by His grace. It's nowhere more clear than in the life of Jonah. Let's just think about Jonah for a minute. Jonah, prophet of the Lord, he had seen the Assyrians uh, take over his, uh, wreak havoc on his uh, land for many years. They probably killed some of his relatives and so forth. And then, and then uh, he hears from God one day, he's a prophet, he hears from God one day, I want you to go preach to those Assyrians. I want you to go to Nineveh, to go to their biggest city. And Jonah says, effectively, you've got to be kidding. Those people deserve to go to hell. They deserve nothing but your judgment. They deserve all of my wrath, all the bad things I've said about them. There's no way I'm going to go and give them the opportunity to get saved. You need to go. I'm not going to go. He goes the other way. He jumps on a boat. He's going to go the opposite way. He goes down, down, down. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down to the sh- ship. He goes down into the hole of the ship. And then God sends a storm and so forth, and the sailors know what it is, and they say, it's because of Jonah. The only way we're going to get peace in this storm is, he explains, throw me overboard. In other words, I'm eager to die. Kill me, please. Put me out of my misery so that I don't have to obey the Lord. They throw him overboard. And God fools him again. God gets the last word. He swallows him. He won't let him die. Swallows him with a fish. Puts him back on the, puts him back on the shore. And then the word of the Lord comes to Jonah the second time. And he says, he says it a little bit differently. He says, go uh, preach to Nineveh and tell them 40 days and you'll be destroyed. It's not that in my, it's not that Jonah you know, was so shaken up by riding around in the belly of the fish that he gets his senses and he decides to obey. It's rather that he thinks the Lord has changed his mind. Huh, now, that's a message I can preach. Go to Nineveh and tell them they're going to be destroyed. I like that, Lord. Sign me up. And he gladly goes around. Forty days and you're going to be destroyed. Forty days you're going to hell. Forty days you're all going to be lit up like a candle. And then the worst thing imaginable happens. They all get saved, even the king of Nineveh. And then Jonah gets mad, and he goes out the outskirts of the city, and he complains. He even cusses. He curses God. And then God digs in, digs in on Jonah's heart, and he says, Why, what right do you have to be so angry? And Jonah says, I'll tell you why I'm angry. Because I knew, I knew, Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, I knew that when you called me to go to preach to Nineveh, I knew you were a God who is slow to anger, gracious, compassionate, 
and forgiving of iniquity, transgression, and sin. I, I know this is who you are. You can't help yourself. You can't help but save people. And I did not want those people saved. We chuckle, don't we? There are people right now, leaders, neighbors, family members, fellow church members. I don't want anything but bad to happen to them. And I'm resentful that you don't feel, God, the same way I do about them. And God is hard-headed when it comes to grace. He saved not only the Ninevites, he saved Jonah. I knew you were slow to anger, merciful, and gracious. So why does James say, when you're tempted to lose perspective on your suffering and come out sideways on people, what do you do? Consider the prophets, a prophet like Jonah, whom God had to save by reminding him of the mercy he himself was a recipient of. So the way to live graciously is to remember the grace of God to the Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever you're mad about, whatever you're aggravated about in life, there's nothing that Jesus hasn't experienced himself and experienced it on your behalf. And when you realize how gracious, undeservedly gracious and merciful God has been to you, it will change the way you live in your suffering and especially the way you relate to others. And then he says, consider Job. Consider Job. And what is it that we're supposed to see in Job especially? You've heard the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. How do you see the compassion and mercy of God in the steadfastness of Job? It is that God was able to convince Job so much that he loved him that Job was able to believe him, trust him counterintuitively. You remember uh, how Job responded uh, when his, he lost his uh, family and his property? He said, the Lord gave and the Lord take away. May the Lord be praised. You remember how he responded when his wife urged him to curse and die? Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And when his friends taunted him, he replied, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. And through the calamity, he looked on high for his witness and advocate, and he knew his Redeemer would come again, 16 and 19. What, what was the difference? Every time something occurred in his life that looked like God had abandoned him, even though he didn't understand it, he put his eyes back on his Redeemer, the Lord Jesus, that he saw even in the Old Testament. He put his eyes back on him, and it put everything in perspective. It didn't answer it. He just knew, I don't know why this is happening. There may be a million reasons for why this is happening, but I know one reason cannot be that God has abandoned me. And one reason cannot be that God is anything less than merciful and gracious and kind and good. Though he slay me, 
though he murder me, I'll trust him. There is nothing that can, that can confront me that I can experience in my life that will shake my confidence in a good Savior. How did Job get that way? God made him that way. And the more he turned to the Lord, the more he was enabled to believe that. How do you live graciously in the middle of trials? By constantly going back to the, to the, to the confession, you, Lord, are good. You, Lord, are slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and mercy. You, Lord, are gracious. You, Lord, love me so much that you gave your son for me. This doesn't seem to follow from that, but that is true. All of this other is fuzzy. It's out of perspective. Please fix my eyes on a good and gracious Savior and settle my confidence in you that I might live peacefully and graciously. When I was in seminary, I had a physician who became a good friend, and uh, he wasn't the most pleasant guy in the world. He was an elder in a local Presbyterian church, but he was pretty ornery, but he was a friend. His wife uh, was diagnosed with cancer at a young age. I thought he was old at the time, but now I realize he was very young. And uh, it was devastating to him. And I, I, I saw him sometimes come out sideways at me. I saw him come out sideways at his friends at times. I, I heard him doubt the Lord's goodness, express his questions. But close, as, as she got closer to death, I saw his eyes also focus more on the goodness of Christ. One day I was in his office and I said, Jim, how's your, how's your wife doing? And he said, she's getting better every day. And I, I, I left, I, I, I just couldn't figure that out. I thought, my goodness, he's gone over the edge. He's in such a state of denial. He thinks his wife's going to be healed. He, he, he's a doctor. He should understand. And then I realized, no, he does understand better than I do. The Lord Jesus has conquered him and conquered his perspective and said, Jim, look at me. Anne is dying. But the reality is she's getting better because she's getting closer to me. I'm going to bring her home, and she's going to be new. It didn't soften the blow so much. If he's, He missed her. He was in pain. He grieved. But having his eyes fixed on Jesus enabled him to see things more clearly. That, yes, her physical life was coming to an end, but she was just going to begin living in the most flourished state she could ever be in. It's what the Lord does miraculously when we put our eyes on Him. Now, how do you get this patience? Remember what we said a few weeks ago when we said the way wisdom functions in the book of James? Wisdom is His Word for the Holy Spirit. 
So how do we get patience for suffering? We pray for wisdom. Chapter 1, I promise I'm wrapping up. James chapter 1, you've got to see this before you leave. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Why do we need wisdom? Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. We can't live through suffering graciously and peacefully without wisdom. And to pray for wisdom is to pray for the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, enable me to live through suffering as you enabled the Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, come to me like Jesus said you would and be my comforter. Holy Spirit, come and give me every good gift. Holy Spirit, come and give me the perspective on suffering that makes me peaceful and gracious. Holy Spirit, produce the life of Jesus in me so that it comes out peacefully and graciously to those around me. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for for loving us so steadfastly, graciously, and peacefully. Fix our eyes on Jesus so that when people look at us, they see our suffering. They see the turmoil we're in, but they say, "What, what is different? There's a peace. There's a grace that surpasses all understanding, and I know it can't come from that person. And in the way you live in us, we pray, get a name for yourself. May we be patient men of God. In Jesus' name we pray. God's men said together, amen.